the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Hope you're having a great afternoon. It's Wednesday. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and you're listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. I know I tell you this sometimes, but I really appreciate you tuning in to listen. This is a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions. Whatever's on your heart and mind, whatever you might be going through, we'll do the best that we can to encourage you and to help out. By the way, ladies, speaking of encouragement, tomorrow is the date day program. That means Paula will be live in studio. It's your day especially, um, not only or exclusively, but especially. We'd love to have your calls. Here is the number that you can call for your questions, 340-9585. That's 340-9585. You can also call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can send them in via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you're driving in your car, use the KSLR free mobile app, hands-free. Hit the Call Now button, and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Uh, Just to keep you abreast of what's going on, because it's Wednesday night here, uh, I'm going to be teaching tonight in 1 Samuel chapter 21, um, a pretty sad episode in David's life with, we're going to find out next Wednesday night, with significant and severe consequences. Uh, but that's our study tonight. And again, Paula will be live in the studio with me tomorrow. And I have it on really good authority. She's going to be really, really especially brilliant tomorrow. So that's what's going on here. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Let's start with some questions that were sent in to us. This one is from our mobile app by uh, Matt. He said, what things in heaven have to be reconciled? And his references, Colossians chapter 1, verse 20. Um, it says, and through him, verse 20, let me go to 19. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Uh, Matt, this does not mean that angels need to be saved or that fallen angels get a second chance, as is often posited by this. Uh, this is nothing more than a very Jewish way of emphasizing all things. So the idea in this verse is universal reconciliation, not universal salvation. That's really important that we understand that. Universal reconciliation and not universal salvation. You know, there's some really neat things to think about in this passage in in Colossians. Imagine this. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him in Christ. And in the process of doing that, God gave us sort of a road map uh, to, uh, to peace. And, and it comes in the form in this passage of Scripture of uh, the past, the present, and the future. When we understand what God has done for us, He's reconciled all things. Now, we know there's no other source of reconciliation with God. It's just Jesus. When we realize that, we have such peace that comes from the fact that all of our sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven and forgotten. 
It means that sins that you haven't even committed yet have been paid for on the cross. Once we were reconciled to God through Jesus Christ um, and reconciled by his blood, God takes care of every need that we would ever have, eternally or temporally. It's really, really important thing. So, Matt, I hope that answers your question. Again, universal reconciliation is in view here as opposed to universal salvation. That is not at all what's in view. Here is a question from a mobile app again. This one is anonymous. Uh, Do you believe the Bible teaches regeneration before faith? Anonymous, absolutely not. It is by grace we are saved through faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And this idea of being saved. Now, what you're referring to here is a a Reformed or Calvinistic doctrine of of, uh, total depravity. You know, we're dead, so uh, we can't be saved. And the, the Calvinists would say, you know, Technically, you have to get saved in order to be saved. Uh, That's nonsense. It's silliness. Uh, The Bible teaches that we are saved by grace through faith, period. And the faith, not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. Now, Anonymous, uh, I I understand the purpose of this question because I understand that that's what Calvinists teach. But here's what we really need to understand. It's not considered a work when we believe we're saved by grace then work has no process or no place in our salvation. And some would say, well, believing then is work. No, it's not. Believing is simply responding to the Holy Spirit. Jesus, when he was getting ready to leave his disciples, he actually told them, it's good for you that I go away because if I go, I will send another comforter to you, a promised Holy Spirit. His job is to convict the world of sin and of righteousness and judgment. So here's the process, Anonymous. When we are apart from Christ, uh, I'll make this personal. In my particular case, Paula praying for me for all those years. Jesus was always right there in the person of the Holy Spirit trying to convince me of two things. Convince me that I'm a sinner. I objected to that. I, I, I didn't think I was all that bad. But the Holy Spirit kept pointing out the things that I was doing. And suddenly I came to this place where the things that I was I had been doing for a long time that never bothered me started bothering me. That was the Holy Spirit whispering in my ear, you know better, you know better. But not only of sin, but of righteousness. His job is to convince us that righteousness is required. And since we can't be righteous... He convinces us that righteousness is available through Jesus Christ. Jesus said, when he comes, he'll testify of me. And then he said he'll send him to testify of judgment. If you don't receive Jesus Christ by faith, then you're going to be judged forever. And so it's the Holy Spirit coming alongside us. The Greek word that you'll see used in the New Testament, especially throughout the book of Acts, is the word para. And he comes alongside us, and that's when he begins the process of convicting us and convincing us. That's how salvation comes. And then he pops the question, do you want to believe? And we all come to that place where we've got to make our own decision. Do I want to believe? Yes, I want to go to heaven, but do you want to believe? One of the things, Anonymous, is that we are guilty of, is that we're, too many of us, we want to be saved from hell, but we don't want to be saved from sin. And so when the Holy Spirit is done convincing us, when he's invited us to join and we say yes, that's when we're regenerated. Not one second before. And when we say yes, I want to be saved, come into my heart. Then that's when the Holy Spirit comes in us. Relationally, he comes in us. And then when we start walking in obedience, he comes upon us in power. So there's no, absolutely no biblical passage that teaches regeneration before faith. That is um, um, a a horrible teaching. I almost said heretical teaching. It's not heretical because it doesn't deny the the essentials of the Christian faith. But it's it's almost the idea that since we're dead, we're we're walking around, we we can't even respond to God uh, while we're dead. So God saves us and then we can respond. No, it's not true. So 
uh, don't buy those arguments. It's simply not the case. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. That's 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Here is a question from our email inbox from Drew. Drew, it's good to hear from you. I haven't heard from you for a while. He said, Pastor Ron, hope is all is well. And then he says, still waiting to buy a copy of your book. Well, Drew, I'm still waiting for the book to get finished, so I, I understand uh, what you're saying. Uh, here's the question, and I love this question, Drew. You're studying and doing well. Thank you. He says, the Greek word for slave is doulos. Most versions of the Bible translate that word servant. Most English-speaking people believe a servant is different than a slave. Why do the translators water down that word? It would seem to me that being a slave to Christ is a better description of how our walk should be. Could I have your thoughts, please? And then he says he'll be in San Antonio next week. I hope to see everyone next Wednesday night. Drew, I'll be thrilled to see you. So thank you uh, for for letting me know. Uh, You know, the reason I said I love this question is because in classical Greek, this word doulos is only translated slave. It's almost like the translators uh, of our Bible, the English translators of our Bibles, try to soften this. You know, the word slave is odious to the culture that we live in. And because it is, um, they, they try to find others. You'll, you'll see it translated in some bond servant. I've heard a lot of teachings say this word means a bond servant. It's a servant by choice. It doesn't mean that at all. It means slaves. And you're absolutely right that being a slave to Christ is a better description not only of how our walk should be, but who we are. We're not our own. We're bought with a price. That's pretty much Paul describing the condition of slavery. But this is a glorious slavery. See, Paul also says in writing to the Romans that we're either slaves to sin or slaves to righteousness. And we get to make that choice. But make no mistake, we're all slaves to something. And the fact that our culture hates that word and we're always looking to soften that word, uh, I think, is tragic. Um, Drew, there's no explanation other than uh, this is sort of a politically or socially or culturally correct cop-out and uh, I, I think it's it's uh, a sad commentary on the translators for doing it. So you're absolutely right. The word means slaves. We are sla- slaves to Christ, and we should be proud to be slaves for Jesus. Hope that helps, Drew. Can't wait to see you next Wednesday night. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Wayne wants to know, uh, does true repentance require change in the way we live? Let me take a few minutes with this one, Wayne, because it absolutely does. Repentance isn't being sorry. Repentance isn't crying big tears. It's not even feeling really guilty. You know, sometimes we do something that we know is wrong. We cry and we we feel really, really bad about ourselves. We talk about ourselves like, how could I do this thing again and again? Uh true repentance. It means a turnaround, a U-turn in life. And so the very definition of the word is requiring a change in the way that we live. And we've lost the value, we've lost the power of the word repent. You know, repent was the first word of the gospel, John the Baptist. Repent, prepare ye for the coming of the kingdom. The kingdom of God is at hand. So what do we do? Repent. That means change our lives. Start living for God instead of away from God. You know, Wayne, the truth is that we were all walking uh, our own direction, doing the things that we want. We met Jesus, and it was an about face. One of the great illustrations in your New Testament is Acts chapter 9, when Saul of Tarsus and I always have this funny picture, and I can't communicate how this picture works in my head, but it's like Saul of Tarsus breathing threats against the church. He's putting people in prison. Uh, we know that uh, he's already uh, consented to the murder of Stephen, uh, the first martyr of the church, uh, who wasn't an apostle. And he's committed to destroying their lives. On the road to Damascus, he meets Jesus. Jesus sort of picks him up, turns him around, and then he's spending all of his energy trying to win people to Christ. That's what repentance is. 
So yes, it requires a change in the way we live. Now here's the problem that we have, Wayne. We don't all change quickly. We don't all change at the same pace. But we all have to change. And I'll say this, and I've said on this program, my church has heard it a thousand times. Unless you're different, noticeably, markedly different than when you claim to receive Jesus Christ, you haven't met him at all. When you meet Jesus, you change because he changes you. He comes inside you relationally. He, he, he knocks on the door of your heart. You invite him in. And then you give him the right to completely clean house. Not just a room here, a room there, but to completely renovate your heart. And as you do that, you will begin to change. You can't do anything except change in the process. Again, you're not even aware of it at times. When I got saved, I had all kinds of terrible habits, things that I liked doing. Make no mistake, I loved doing the things that I knew were sinful. But when you're hanging around with Jesus, those things just aren't fun anymore. And for me, it didn't take all that long to, to stop doing those things and, and just think, you know what, this isn't fun. I didn't even understand why they weren't fun. I'd been doing some of those things for so many years that I couldn't imagine my life doing anything else. But now here I am, I'm doing them. Paula used to, 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 to I'd say, well, I'm going out to play poker, I'm going out to the racetrack. And, and she didn't nag me, she just prayed. And those things that I was doing that I always, I mean, I lived to do those things. Suddenly, right in the middle of them, I'm saying, you know what? I don't like this. I tried another time or another two or three times. And it would become less and less fun every time. And so you just stop doing it. If you're an angry person, meeting Jesus requires you to change. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, self-control. Those are the fruits of the Spirit. And so the, the, thing, the things that you used to do don't describe who you are. The old is gone, the new has come. And so true repentance absolutely, Wayne, requires a change in the way we live. That's very, very important. Anybody who hasn't changed, and if you're in this listening audience, and you haven't changed since you profess faith in Jesus Christ, then you need to really examine your heart. It's too easy in our Western culture to answer an altar call or go get baptized and think that sort of seals the deal. It's not the outward things that we do. It's the inward change. I told Ezekiel and Jeremiah, I will take their hearts of stone and turn them into hearts of flesh. Hard, soft. That's what repentance really is. And it is absolutely required no matter what it is that we do. Thank you, Abreen. Appreciate the uh, question. Anonymous wants to know, where in the Bible can I find that gambling is condemned? You can't. Because gambling isn't condemned. Should it be? Well, that's for you to decide. Now, if you just heard my answer to the last question, the things that I used to do, I, I used to own, when I was a, a wealthy businessman, a successful businessman, I owned racehorses. I spent, uh, I worked over 100 hours a week, uh, and what little time I had uh, was spent either playing golf or going to the racetrack or playing poker all night. What were my motives? Greed? That's condemned in the Bible, isn't it? So that's really, really important. It's not the action. It's the motive. It's the heart behind it. So there's nothing in the Bible that says gambling is condemned. Nothing at all. But the motives that cause gambling, somebody wants to hit the jackpot, want to, want to, uh, doesn't want to work, wants fast money, all of that is condemned in Scripture. As I said a minute ago, greed is condemned in Scripture. 
you also might want to take a look at the circumstances around your gambling. Now, because I'm an expert in this area, Anonymous, let me say this. Everywhere I was where I was gambling, there was sin all around me. Filthy language, people taking God's name in vain, people who weren't, they say, use the term upright citizens, people who are con men and women looking to get over on others, people wanting to take from others even if they had to cheat. All of those actions are condemned in Scripture. Gambling in and of itself is not. Let me tell you a very quick story. Uh, an old friend of mine who uh, is went on to become really, really famous, he was a jockey named Pat Day. Started in a little track in Prescott, Arizona. Um, on the day he won the Kentucky Derby, the first time, um, they shoved the microphone in his face as he was coming back to the uh, paddock area and said, Pat, your first Kentucky Derby, it's been a long time coming. What do you want to say? And here's what he said. This just proves that God works all things together for those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. Now, I got to know Pat before I was saved, but I knew he was. So it doesn't mean that if you work in the gambling industry, you're not saved. God has his people everywhere. But here's what you need to understand. Before you gamble, you need to ask, can you do it with a clear heart? Romans 14.23 says, anything not of faith is sin. Can you do it in good faith? Can you go hang around people who are drinking or doing drugs? If I tie this in with the previous question about repentance requiring a change of life, you, you know, you have to be different, which means you're going to hang around different people and do different things. When you're gambling, you're going to have to think, Can I do this with Jesus here? Am I comfortable with Jesus here? And the answer to those questions are the things that are going to change or the things that God is going to use to change you. We have to understand that. Exodus 20 says, You shall have no other gods before me. Jesus said you can't serve two masters, of course, talking about greed. So you got to choose. Let me say something else, and again, this comes from my own personal experience. My wife was hurt by my gambling. She didn't want me to gamble. My Bible says to love your wives the way Christ loved the church, giving himself up for her. Is that a sin if I put me in her place? So I hope that answers your question, Anonymous. Thank you for calling in the question. Uh, we're inside four minutes now for this half of the program. Phones have been quiet, but we'd love your live calls for the next portion of the program, 340-9585. Here is a question. I don't have time for that one, so uh, here's what I can do. Um, Anna says, Pastor Ron, do you think a lot of mental illness and epilepsy diagnoses are in reality demon possession? Um, and I don't know how many or how much. Uh, I'm not qualified to, to judge uh, how much, but I can, I can say this with, I think, clarity. Um, I think there are many mental illnesses that are not really mental illnesses at all. I think uh, my experience in prisons, my experience in nursing homes, uh, my experience in hospital with people who who um, are, are manifesting um, mental illness um, symptoms. Um, I knew I was dealing with demon-possessed people. Uh, I think it would be less so with epilepsy. Um, I wouldn't rule it out. Uh, but, you know, our world is sort of kind of turned away from any notion that the supernatural exists, whether it's good or bad. 
And so there always has to be a logical or practical answer for for the reason people are the way they are. Sometimes it's demon possession. We know in the Bible that Jesus came across people who were demon possessed all the time. I can say this, Anna, uh, and and I don't. I'm not looking at you. I don't know if it's Anna or Anna. Um, so I'm sorry if I mispronounce. Um, but there's a whole lot of incidents in the Bible where Jesus would encounter demon-possessed people, and we see people who are described as mentally ill doing some of the same things, cutting themselves, trying to commit suicide. Um, For me personally, it's always pretty easy to tell when I'm dealing with a demon rather than an illness. Um, Those are never fun experiences. Um, But at the same time... um, we have to have compassion on people because most of the time we won't know what we're dealing with. But always be open and available. Um, don't throw out an enemy who wants us to ignore him. Don't give that same enemy, the devil, too much credit. He can't do anything without going through the Lord to get to you first. So, um, again, I don't know how much Anna or Anna Uh, But I do know that some of it certainly is. So I hope that helps. Hey, we'd love to have your live calls. We've got 30 minutes left in the Wednesday edition of the program. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. You're listening to The Word to Santa for Life. We'll be back in two minutes. to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back we've got 30 minutes left in the program and i promise you it'll be a lot more interesting with your phone calls 340-9585 here's a question from jesse that i didn't have time for in a couple of minutes so uh, Jesse wants to know, do you think, he's talking to me, do you think homosexuals can be changed by God into heterosexuals? Jesse, I personally think, now God can do anything, we know that. But I personally think that that question is an insult. It's as though we, we and I don't mean you're, I don't, that's not your intent and I'm sure. But, but, but imagine what it would be like if somebody came to you and there was something about your life, and they were indicating uh, by, by the question they asked that you're somehow broken or defective. I think this is one of the reasons that we have such a difficult time uh, reaching those who are lost in sin. Um, sinners, people who don't know Christ, sin, that sin takes different forms. I know people who have left uh, homosexual lifestyles and have... Um, uh, found Christ and later um, were married and had children uh, and were engaged in, in, in wonderful marriages. Um, but, but, but again, I think what we have to understand is that only Jesus can change people. And it isn't about being changed in terms of your sexuality. It's about being changed in terms of your eternal destination, being changed in, in terms of your worldview. It's about surrendering to Him. And when we surrender to Jesus, He begins this process that the Bible calls the doctrine of sanctification. That doesn't begin before. You know, I've talked to a lot of homosexuals who indicated they wanted to be straight, but they just couldn't. And my answer to them was, of course you can't. But this is about you meeting Almighty Holy God. And if He's God, He has authority. And necessarily that means we have to die, not physically, but spiritually, because we're the ones in authority in our lives. We have to acquiesce that position to Him. And when we do that, here's what I know will happen for sure, Jesse. I know that he will begin to work out his will in and through our lives. 
He'll change us as quickly as we can change us. Now, it doesn't mean that somebody who's attracted to uh, people of the same sex, uh, it doesn't mean that's going to stop. But what it means is that they have to make a choice every day. When Jesus said to be my disciple, you have to deny yourself, pick up your cross. Well, that's some people's cross to bear. In the same way, when somebody uh, is uh, a drunk and they meet Jesus, he begins to ask them to carry their cross. Well, for them, that cross is alcohol. And there's any numbers of sins listed. Paul writes to the churches in Thessalonica and he lists all of those sins. He says, and such were some of you, but we've been changed. We've been born again. So it isn't about whether or not homosexuals can be changed into heterosexuals. It's about whether or not they can be changed into believing and then God will change them according to his will. That doesn't mean he's going to take away all of their difficulties. It means that they're going to have the power that lives in them that enables them to say no to that which is sinful. And again, I think it's insulting and I think we do a disservice to people by making those kind of promises. You might remember, Jesse, uh, there was a, a, a thing going really, really through um, Exodus International and some others reparative therapy where they were telling people that you can sort of pray the gay away. Um, even before I understood these issues, that was insulting. Sometimes we're asked to say no to our flesh. And when we do, well, then God is pleased. In the world that we live in, where being gay is applauded, affirmed, where those who are publicly protesting for their acceptance and affirmation are blaming the church and God and everybody else. This is who I am. That's my identity, they say. Apart from meeting Jesus, that's not going to change. But you see, when they meet Jesus, they no longer identify as gay. They identify as his. Who are you? I'm gay. No, I'm a Christian. And by the way, there's no such thing as a gay Christian. A Christian who has same-sex attraction. That's just his cross or his burden to bear. Or hers. To look for acceptance of your sin is to miss the whole point of the new creation. So it's not about what we're tempted by. It, it instead becomes about how we respond to those temptations. Instead of doing what we want, we've got to get to the place where the most important thing in our lives is doing what He wants. And Jesse, for you and for the rest of the listeners in this audience, for Christians everywhere, stop looking at people who are identifying as homosexual as though they're broken or defective. They're sinners. And only Jesus has the power to change them, to transform them. And then they're transformed the way we are by being with Jesus. We're transformed by the renewing of our mind. That's new thinking. By deciding who's in charge in our life. And no matter what your sin is, if you want to be in control of your life, you haven't really met Jesus. Now, I know the desire is there in all of us to be in control. But we've given up control of our lives. The old you dies and a new you is born again by the power of the Spirit. So, Jesse, I hope that helps just a little bit. Let's go to Bulverde now and talk with Carolyn yes. on line one. Carolyn, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Yes, thank you very much. Uh, I'm afraid I've gotten in here just very late. I'm not sure about uh, what all your you have already discussed, but what I've heard sounds absolutely uh, fascinating. You're talking about the Holy Spirit, and I believe spiritual warfare. Is this correct? Well, I, wasn't, I, I talked about the Holy Spirit earlier, Carolyn, but I haven't been talking about spiritual warfare. What, what are you asking? Well, I'm, 
I'm asking uh, about uh, spiritual warfare if you're not, I think you said earlier uh, something about don't, uh, don't resist uh, evil spirits, but don't, don't, don't uh, cooperate with them either. I'm not sure quite what you said. Yeah, Carolyn, I that, that certainly didn't do that on today's program, so I, I'm sorry if I, I, I'm not trying to be difficult. I just don't, we didn't talk about that at all today. But I'll answer any question you have, so please let me help. Pardon me? I, I said uh, I'll, I'll, I'll answer any question you have anyway, so uh, if there's some way I can, I can answer a question, please, uh, please go ahead and ask. Uh, well, if, if that's not your topic, I'll, I'll go ahead and hang up. I don't want to interrupt your, your program there. Nope. I, I was just answering questions, but that just didn't come up. So since this is a program for questions, if you've got one, you're not interrupting at all. Well, what about spiritual warfare? Okay. Uh, do you believe in, in uh, what, what, what have, you, have you dealt with, uh, in, with spiritual warfare? Yes, and and Carolyn, we all every Christian does. So uh, to to be sure, we we deal with a, a spiritual war going on in our lives. That's why Paul wrote uh, in Ephesians six that we don't battle against flesh and blood, but our our battle, our war, really, uh, is against um, um, powers and principalities. And he gives us the way to deal with spiritual warfare. Now, a couple of things that we need to remember is we have no power or authority on our own to battle um, uh, these the spiritual spiritual battles. We, we, we fight in our own strength and we're always going to get whipped. But when we fight in the power of God's might, we put on the full armor of God, and let me simplify that for everybody in the audience. Um, putting on the full armor of God simply means to be with Jesus. He's the one who protects us. And for you, Carolyn, and for, for others, you know, we, we, there's so much bad teaching out there. We can, we can say, I bind you, Satan. I take authority over you. He just laughs at that kind of nonsense. James says this, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. But by submitting to God, that means we're with Jesus. We're walking with him. Hebrews says that he is our elder brother. And a big brother's job is to protect his little siblings. And, and so when we're with Jesus, then we're fighting the battle. There's no formula. The, 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 the full armor of God in Ephesians 6 is not a formula. It's simply Paul's way of saying he was looking at a, a, a prison um, guard who was guarding him when he was writing the book of Ephesians. And he noticed that they were all prepared for war. So he used that sort of as a, a metaphor for our battle. The shield of faith, uh, uh, the breastplate of righteousness. When we're under attack, we have to fight with the weapons that God has given us and not in the weaponry of this world. So when we are under attack, one of my big things that we're going to talk about tonight here at, at Calvary Chapel, First Samuel chapter 21, is David is overcome suddenly by fear. This once brave, brave warrior is now overcome by fear, and the enemy's right there. So whenever we give in to fear, whenever we give in to sin, whenever we do what we want instead of what God wants, then the enemy has a foothold. He has an opportunity to pound. And only getting right with God, repenting of our sin, asking for forgiveness, uh, John says, if you confess your sin, he, God, is faithful to forgive you and purify you from all unrighteousness. Then we're right back in that place where Jesus can protect us. So I think the easiest thing uh, to explain here, Carolyn, is that if you let Jesus do your fighting, you're going to win. If you do the fighting, you're going to lose. So the spiritual battles are, are um, true. They're real. Um, but at the same time, we have been given assurance of victory if we let him do the fighting. Um, perhaps, Carolyn, you're talking about demon possession. Uh, we, we had a, I had a question from somebody that was talking about mental illness and epilepsy. Were, they, uh, were, were those caused by, by demon spirits? Um, but uh, my, my answer, I hope, was clear. Uh, sometimes 
but but not as often uh, as some Christians like to make more often than probably unbelievers like to to think. So maybe that's what you're talking about, and I just didn't make that connection. So Carolyn, thank you, and I'm sorry if I didn't answer your question. Let's go to Harold calling on line two. Harold, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. Good afternoon. Yes, I have a question about Romans chapter 3, verse 1 through 3. I think it's maybe 2 where it talks about the oracle, where the it, I've read it many times, but it says something like the Jewish people have their God because of the oracle. And I did look up the word oracle, but I just don't know how it's used. And I'm not sure what that translates from. That's in the King James and, and the New King James. And something about a breastplate or a, a way to speak to God, that might be a whole lot to come up with, but I just don't know what the word oracle, how the word oracle is used there and what it means. Well, well it's from there, don't mind. Okay, thank you. Here, let me ask, are you talking about Genesis chapter 4? I mean, I'm sorry, uh, Romans chapter 4 or chapter 3? I, I believe it's Romans chapter 3, verse 1 through 3. I hope I got that no, right. Yeah, that's that's not know. it. Um, is it Romans one? Oh yes, yes, yes. Chapter I got one? you. It's Romans three. Uh, no, I, you're you're right. I found it. It's Romans chapter three. Um, uh, what advantage then is there in being a Jew, or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, they've been entrusted with the very words of God. Uh, the King James uses the word oracle, as you said. I was looking at the NIV, so uh, I'm, I'm with you now, and uh, I'll answer, Harold. Thank you for calling. I appreciate it very, very much. Uh, the, the word oracle is translated in the newer translations as the very words or word of God. And what Paul is saying here is that Jews, now you remember in Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 2, he's made the, the, the argument that all people, Jew, Gentile, everybody's under the condemnation of sin. And because his audience, his Jewish audience, didn't believe that was the case. They believed that by having the word of God, uh, by, by having the law of God, to be more specific, that they were somehow um, uh, automatically in heaven. Not, not doing the law, but having the law. Because we're God's people, then we were in, is kind of what he was saying. And the first two chapters of Romans answers it. So then he says this, well... And, and this is Paul asking the rhetorical question, well, if, if being a Jew doesn't get you to heaven automatically, well, what advantage is there in being a Jew? What value is there in circumcision, the ritual of circumcision? And he claims much. And he says, first, they've been given the word of God. In fact, Jews during the time of Paul's life and beyond, before that, they knew more about God because God revealed, at least his character was revealed to them through the law. They had a system in place of sacrifices that allowed them to approach God, to allow them to have their sins covered over from year to year. So when he's talking about these advantages, I, the, the, the word for advantage is actually uh, better translated overplus. When I taught this chapter some time ago, um, uh, I, I just said we're going to talk about the 10 overpluses of being a Jew um, and how that applies to us. And the very first one is they're entrusted with the oracle of God and the very words of God. How much more, Harold, you and me? So that's what he's talking about. Please don't ever miss the context of Romans. Paul is making a legal case for the need for all men, Jew and Gentile, to have faith in Jesus Christ in order to be saved. And um, a Jew might say, well, if I'm, if I'm not saved by virtue of being a Jew and because I'm circumcised, well, what's the point? He says, here's the point. And the advantages are overwhelming. One other thought here, Harold, and this is more an application for all of us. If the Jews had the advantage of having God's word, how much greater is our advantage today? How much greater is our advantage today? So we've got the word. We need to be students of the word, not just casual readers, but students of the world. And Harold, you're doing exactly the right thing. By, by going through the Word, these questions are coming up, and you're finding answers to those questions. But keep the Bible in context. The Book of Romans, when you're just reading it, it's hard sometimes to keep it in context, but always understand the outline of the book. Understand what Paul's trying to communicate. Because once you do, this is a book that has changed more lives than any other New Testament book that we have. We have been trusted with God's Word. And so our advantage is not only heaven, our advantage is here living on earth. 
Really, really important questions. Thank you very, very much, Harold. 340-9585. Here is a question from, um, well, it's a good question, follow-up, Harold's question. It's from Anonymous. We have a lot of questions about the Bible. How can I believe it's more than just a book? And how do I resist the doubts that come? Well, you're not going to like the first answer, but, but remember, everything that we receive from God, we have to receive by faith. And I'm not talking about blind faith. I'm not talking about uh, faith without evidence. But one of the things that you have to do is you've got to decide for yourself. Now, I've told this story so many times in this program. Um, perhaps you haven't heard it, but this was my big struggle. You know, I was almost 40 years old when I got saved. And everything changed so rapidly for me. I had all these questions, and I didn't know where to get answers. And every time I would ask other Christians, who I figured had all this stuff already worked out, I would say, what about this and what about this? And their answer would always start with, the Bible says. And I didn't understand how a book written by men could also be the Word of God. It made no sense to me. Uh, with, with, uh, uh, as a brand new believer, with no understanding of the Holy Spirit, um, I really couldn't buy the concept that this book written by men that's thousands of years old, um, 66 books written by 40 different authors over about a 1,500-year period of time, how could this be the Word of God? Paul wrote this, Peter wrote this, but you're telling me God wrote it. And so I had to purpose in my heart, Anonymous, to find out. And I asked the same question, how can I believe this is more than just a book? I had to find out for myself. And if you'll take this challenge, it'll be the greatest challenge of your life. It will change your life forever. Dig in. Start studying. Study how our Bible came to be. And at some point, the Holy Spirit will meet you and you'll be convinced. Now, there are liberal scholars, people who have been studying the Bible for decades and decades and decades who never get converted. For me, it took about three months, just short of three months. And I had every question answered that I had, and the, the answers were, were coming so quickly. Um, uh, the, the evidence was overwhelming. The, the living, acting, active nature of the Bible uh, was so clear to me because it would meet me uh, where I was. It would even answer questions that I hadn't even thought to ask yet. And at some point, it was almost like Jesus was in that room with me saying, are you convinced yet? And when I finally said, yeah, I'm convinced, I can tell you, Anonymous, I've never had a single moment of doubt since that time comes. Now, it doesn't mean that the enemy doesn't bring doubts. I like the second part of your question um, here as well. Uh, how do I resist the doubts that come? You have to fight. There's an enemy who wants you to doubt. You know, when I got saved, and um, a friend, a good friend, brought me, bought me a brand new King James Version of the Bible, genuine leather. It smelled good. It looked good. Every Christian ought to have one. But I put it on my desk at work for six months, and I would try to open it, and the, the, the struggle was so intense. Uh, I, I would, there were times I actually felt nauseous, and I just put it down. And finally, after six months, I said, you know, Christians read their Bibles. I've got to read my Bible, and I just sort of fought through it. And you know what? It just made sense. Now, it didn't mean I understood everything, to be sure. That's, that's important. But what it meant was it said that we have to do this because of what Jesus did, and somehow that made sense to me. Okay, here's how my life has to change. And as my life began to change, I understood more of it. And the more I understood about it, the more I wanted to read it, the more I wanted to understand even more of it. And so you just have to fight the doubts that come. There's an enemy who doesn't want us to be convinced that the Bible is the Word of God. It is the most important thing that we can possibly imagine in terms of helping our walk with the Lord be um, full and rich. So, Anonymous, get it with all of your heart. Here's a question from our mobile app from Rich. He says, what factors should a person consider when deciding what Bible translation to use? Rich, great question. I think the most important uh, factor is readability. Um, we don't want to read above nor below a level that's comfortable. 
Um, I think there's so many good translations out there that when you find one that's readable, that, that, that seems to fit for you, then you should grab it. Uh, I, I also think that we should read from multiple versions of the Bible when we study especially, uh, but, but they give us different perspectives a little bit. And uh, eventually you will settle on one. So the most important factor, the most important factor is will you open it up every day? If the answer is yes, you're on the right track. Secondly, we need to find out whether or not it is a reliable translation. We don't want a translation um, that is a um, like the message. It's a it's a paraphrase. Uh, we want to get a translation. The Living Bible uh, is a reliable paraphrase that is sort of a translation, and sometimes it's really, really good, but sometimes it's not. Um, the New Living Translation for a, a more readable version is a really good translation, but the translations come either word for word, like the King James or the New King James, or thought for thought, like the 84 NIV or some of the newer translations. I personally prefer the thought for thought because it puts it into a language in English that makes sense to us. Uh, if you're looking at King James, sometimes you look at the words and say, what? And they've got things backwards. Um, uh, but they're just translating a, a, a dynamic language, either Greek or Hebrew, um, word for word, and it doesn't translate well into English. So find one that translates well, uh, that's understandable, and one that you read. I think that's the most important thing, uh, Rich, those two things. The rest is just a matter of style um, and um, personal choice. Appreciate it. Thank you very, very much. How are we doing on time? I think we're pretty... Okay, I'm being told we're almost out of time, so um, I don't think I have a really quick question, so... Anonymous, let me just go back to you for the last few seconds that we've got here. Read a Bible. Dig in and fight. You're tough. It'll change your life. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. Tomorrow, Paula will be live in studio with me on the Date Day edition of the program at 4 o'clock on AM 630, The Word. See you then. Bye-bye. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.